You have 24 minutes, the podcast from 24 Hour Nation. My name is Randall White. What role can live music have in our city's cultural vibrancy and economic growth? And what responsibilities do cities and cultural guardians have to grow and nurture local music scenes? Let's hear from musician Ben London, executive director of Sonic Guild Seattle. We will talk about how small actions can create big results, the importance of music to a city's ecosystem, and the transformative magic of live performance. Here are 24 Minutes with Ben London. Sonic Guild is a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to building community that supports the creation and performance of new music by exceptional musicians. So Sonic Guild, originally known as Black Fret, came into existence and started in Austin, Texas in 2013. I shepherded its expansion to Seattle starting in 2019 with a launch in 2020. We had absolute impeccable timing and that we launched our Seattle chapter on the same day the first person died of COVID in Kirkland, Washington, and the whole country shut down two weeks later. We won't take responsibility and have since uh, expanded our third market in uh, Colorado, and we have a fourth pilot program we're currently doing in Bentonville, Arkansas. So the real origin of the organization was built around the concept of wanting to support musicians, wanting to find a way to build this larger community for both an experiential layer of people being able to experience local music. You know, I'd say our sweet spot is people that maybe are a little bit older, people that absolutely love music, but through work or family have maybe gotten uh, separated from it a little bit. And we're looking for a re-entry point. Still very passionate about it, but their time has become far more uh, valuable in some ways than the disposable income. And so we create uh, performances featuring uh, uh, emerging artists from our communities for this constituency of our members. And then uh, on a yearly basis, those members along with former grant recipients and, and industry advisors uh, nominate and vote to determine who we give our grants to on a yearly basis. And so I'm happy to say that we recently passed uh, the mark of we've distributed over three and a half million dollars directly to musicians in Austin, Seattle and Colorado since 2013. You have been as a resident and a professional in Seattle. You've been kind of a witness to Seattle's transformation since the 80s. Uh, you moved in to Seattle in 89 to pursue music professionally. You, uh, as a musician, you kind of had a front seat to the whole transformation of Seattle from, I think I saw you reference it once as a foggy town to the cultural engine that wound up shaping the sound of music in America through the 90s. And you you performed um, formerly Alcohol Funny Car, right? Yeah. And do you still perform a stag? I, I do. I do. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's unclear whether it's a band or sort of a poker night at this point. We're, we're all people that 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 played music professionally at one point in our in our lives, uh, for the most part. And it's just really great to continue to use those muscles, even though we're not pursuing full time music careers. And, uh, you know, we've been to, we've been to, we've been over and played in Europe. We've been, you know, down to South by Southwest a couple of times, you know, stuff like that. So uh, if it's fun, uh, we find a way to try and go do it. What what have been some of the highlights to you personally as a, someone who started out as a musician in Seattle in, during the scene of Seattle music of the late 80s and 90s? Sure. Well, you know, you got to understand that when I moved out to Seattle in 1989, I was with a cohort of people that I'd gone to college with and we were 
kind of didn't 100% randomly choose Seattle, but it might as well have been. We were looking for a place to go play music that wasn't kind of New York or LA or something like that. I traveled through Seattle in summer 88, thought it was a beautiful city. We were aware of a couple of the artists that were bubbling up. Uh, I think Soundgarden had released a record on SST at that point, Skinyard, a couple of these other bands. So we knew that there was at least bands that were more aligned with the kind of music we were interested in out here. It just so happened, though, that we kind of won the lottery, that we rolled up here and then ended up becoming the epicenter, as, as you mentioned before, for this next sort of uh, musical explosion that helped define the 90s and beyond. To me, what I've really taken away from that experience uh, after, you know, 30 years in the rearview mirror is um, how transformational a small group of people can be. Mm. I think that so many times we think about these these artists or these bands or these things that go on and they have this a massive impact. But so many times for every Nirvana or Pearl Jam or in more recent time, Death Cab for Cutie or Macklemore or Brandy Carlisle or these other artists that have come out of the Seattle market, they are emerging from a from a from a group of similar minded artists that are are making music and inspiring each other and pushing each other forward. You know, when we think about the kind of 90s and the grunge thing and the artists that came out of it, there was a point in like the mid 80s. Now, I didn't live here yet. So but from what I've been told where, you know, it was the same hundred people in a small room every night. Oftentimes, if you weren't on the stage, you were standing in the audience watching each other. And that that's where a lot of that stuff grew. And it never starts giant, right? It always starts somewhere. And the fact that it went on and they slowly learned and evolved their craft and got better. And that, you know, back then we had much more regionalism in this country pre-internet. So things could kind of bubble up and cook. And we were in the Seattle was up here in like in the in the woods, literally uh, up in the Pacific Northwest. It wasn't on like the the regular shipping routes, uh, as you'd say, for commerce and uh, in the music community. And, uh, you know, with the exception of maybe Hart and Robert Cray and Queensryche, a few people that had pushed their heads up uh, previously from the Northwest. But it was the ingenuity, the creativity, and then the vision of some people that maybe weren't on the stage, but how they could market that. And uh, that ended up, you know, kind of a, a voice finding a mouth uh, collectively. And it was just the right place at the right time. I mean, well, at the same time that transformation was going on, you also began to kind of transform from a performer and songwriter to a change agent in the music industry side on the on the nurturing side you worked for a while at the experience music project which is now called the museum of pop culture i don't get that but okay and uh, you chaired the seattle music commission so why that transformation well i think this you're going to see some themes in all this stuff in that relatively small actions can create bigger ripples and larger effects and so i was lucky enough to be part of in the 90s, again, uh, my band, I, I jokingly refer to myself as a footnote of flannel in that my band did many of the things that other bands did except sell millions of records. But I used that opportunity to learn quite a bit about the music business in terms of when we were getting signed and dealing with labels and all that sort of business stuff. And that when I heard about the Experience Music Project that originally was supposed to be a Jimi Hendrix Museum, I have a visual arts degree from when I was in college. It was one of those like light bulb moments where I was like, I have to work there. This was a right. place that was meant for me to work at. And luckily, through hook and crook and and some networking acumen and begging and borrowing and all of those things, I managed to walk talk my way into an internship. Um, you know, and my band, you know, we'd done, I guess, you know, I, we didn't sell a ton of records, but, you know, I mean, uh, we played with everybody and, you know, I mean, like, you know, whether we were opening up for Green Day or just somebody just sent me a flyer the other day 
you know, you're in Dallas and, you know, a show that we did with Elliot Smith and, and Mary, you know, like on tour going down to South by Southwest. I mean, just, you know, all these people were our peers. I took what I learned and, and was very passionate about music. I think that uh, wanted to continue to be involved with music, whether even, even if I wasn't on the stage at all times and continued to use my sort of um, skills and things that I'd learned on the business side, but also the network, the people, it's all about the people, right? And so I was able to use those relationships uh, or be a connector to other people in the community that helped uh, create a mutual benefit for a lot of uh, people involved. I had a conversation yesterday with a woman who's in charge of uh, the state organization for music, the advocacy organization for music in New South Wales and Australia and kind of mm-hmm. the investments that they're doing there. And I asked her if she realized that the, if, if the musicians realized the power they have in transforming a place, why is it important, do you think, for those who have practical knowledge of live music or any art form, really, to step into these leadership roles in a community? Well, it's, I think you you hit the nail on the head there that, um, you know, that really is the thing that oftentimes music is a conduit to the youth in a community. And that we had some people, I will not take credit for it, but that were influential in us trying to figure out how we could use the music community to gather people together and advocate for issues that were either music related and or community related. So we had some couple things that were going on in Seattle in the early 90s. There was a teen dance ordinance that had been put in place in the 80s that basically did not allow live music to happen with people over 21 and under 21 in the same room, you know, that was based to had, you know, and really, if you look at the origins of that, it was very homophobic. It was tied to dance clubs where there were people over 21 and under 21 and, and you know, targeting the gay community uh, at that time. So there were things like that of getting that taken off the books about creating this larger voice to a certain point that when people were trying to get elected to office here, whether it was for city council, mayor, uh, governor, they started to see about trying to use the music community or or having to come sort of basically talk to the music community about our wants and needs mm. for us to try to gather uh, uh, to garner support for them in their in their ambitions uh, as elected leaders. You know, one of the biggest tools that we had in that, other than just the organizing standpoint, is that. We gathered together and we were able to get a bunch of co- build a coalition of people that, that commissioned an economic impact study of the music community. Very nice. And that really, uh, really uh, uh, put the needle into the red in the sense of like, all of a sudden we could say, we're as big as the maritime industry here in the mm. Northwest, you know, and then all of a sudden people are like, oh, oh, no, this is real. This is real money. Not to mention that because of what happened here in Seattle in the 90s, that music was a major tourism driver and a, basically a marketing tool around the world for Seattle. I mean, you talk to so many people that moved to Seattle, wanted to take jobs in Seattle, why it was appealing was because of the sort of youth culture that defined the 90s and uh, drew a lot of people from other places. And a lot of, um, you know, we're obviously an epicenter for tech, but it was a lot of smart people that were music fans that really wanted to live in Seattle and they helped power the Microsofts and the Amazons uh, uh, of the world. Let's talk about the Vera Project. You know, I didn't tell you I was going to ask you about this, but I was very impressed by it and your role with that. And what does it do? Well, basically, this came out of the teen dance ordinance is like, let's create spaces um, that can give young people a, a place to see music, but also a place to build their own culture and learn. So, it's a you know about a 250 or 300 cap venue. They have a silk screening shop. They have an art gallery. They do classes. They do a whole variety of stuff. And that 
you know, you can learn how to do sound or lights there or different things like that. And so they're feeding the larger music community as well. So I, I was not instrumental in starting it, even though I was a supporter. I was on the board at one point. But no, it's 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 a great organization. And again, that's something that we started. We used that kind of DIY nature that drove the right. 90s explosion and put that towards other projects. And so that was one of our one of the outcomes of getting the teen dance ordinance knocked down was the way that so how can we support young people's safe uh, access to live music? One of the other things that we've had historically here is that, you know, in many cities in America, and this is not a knock on either organization, you have two large corporate entities that are handling most of the music in the in the country, whether that's AEG or Live Nation. We are lucky enough that we have a third entity called the Seattle Theater Group that was put into place originally to preserve a couple historic theaters here in Seattle, but they've grown in their purview and done a bunch of stuff. And so we have a third person at that table that's kind of bidding on stuff or looking at stuff, which kind of keeps the, uh, the, the level of competition a little higher. Now, the challenge that we're facing right now is that I love all of our historic venues, our big venues. I love that. But the biggest thing to me is, is how do you grow artists into those large venues? Right. And the, the, the real friction that we're feeling right now is that a lot of our development rooms, you know, when I think of a development room as a room under 500 people, they've changed. You know, Seattle in some ways is like Manhattan. You know, we got water on both sides. There's only so much real estate. So the only way to go is up at a certain point. You can't go out. They changed the tax laws in some ways that have started to assess tax value based on what the value of that land could be. So if it's zoned to put 20 stories on it and you're in a two-story building that has a small music venue, at a certain point, there's taxes being incurred on the potential of what it could be, right? And so hopefully I'm uh, explaining that correctly. But there's, you know, mass amounts of development going on and because the land is so valuable, so we're seeing some of our, you know, historic development rooms getting getting closed or displaced. There's some other ones popping up in different places. But that's where I am most interested in devoting my time because there's enough money in the ecosystem and the larger live venues to keep that business going. But the smaller venues are the real labors of love. And I've had my life changed more in rooms that held under 500 people more than ever seeing shows in giant rooms. Right. And they're basically like the community centers. They are the performance centers. They're the incubators. They're all those things. And again, for every Brandy Carlisle that jumps out and becomes a national stage, there was 30, 40 other artists of similar aesthetic vision, all that stuff that we're performing next to each other, shoulder to shoulder, inspiring each other. And it just happens that, you know, not everybody makes it to the mountaintop, but everybody's trying to make the climbs. So. I've asked you about this through some texts we've had back and forth. Yeah. I want to touch on a topic I really have a bigger concern about than I think anybody else I've ever talked to. The metaverse, virtual reality, artificial intelligence. We're seeing virtual concerts, festivals, virtual museums. I saw something yesterday about a virtual restaurant. How does that going to work? Uh, plays written by chat GPT. Colleagues of mine who are creating virtual reality content tell me that in even in in-person events like dining out, et cetera, everybody's going to want to begin to factor in virtual reality experiences if they want to stay viable. One study I saw indicated that 80% of those people who are active in the metaverse are more comfortable in virtual entertainment settings than real ones. This is concerning. Work today is not what it was before the pandemic. You don't have to be there anymore, wherever there is. So what do you think this portends for live music and musicians? I go back and forth on it, right? Because I think there's been a level of alarm and alarmism 
as long as technology has existed, like when new technology gets introduced, it's like, what's this going to do to our lives, right? I think that some stuff we feel the immediate impact, some stuff, it takes years. So I just heard somebody talking today about like, you know, the difference, talking about social media and its impact on people, but then talking in terms of alcohol's effect on people and that we've had hundreds or thousands of years to gauge what alcohol does to people. And we know that some people, it's a form of merriment. It can be all this thing. It can be a problem for some people. For social media, we have maybe 10 years and we're just starting to kind of figure that out and, and that new social media and stuff kind of evolves. So when you think about the AI and the metaverse, I think the jury's still out. I mean, it's, it, to me, it's a very artisanal uh, medium right now, right? It's, it hasn't had mass adoption. Um, I think to me, if the pandemic taught me anything, and again, this could be generational, at first, I was great to see people performing online just to, so there was some connection to the outside world, but right. I never see a concert on my laptop again. I'm okay with that. Nothing to the against the people that like to do that, but I don't know, back to that thing, there's just something about viewing something with people. You know, I, I mean, I think that, you know, again, generationally, like there was dual purpose going to see music back when we were younger. It was about the music, but it was also about, how, it's where you met people. It's maybe where you dated. It's like different things like that. So. I don't think anybody dates just by meeting somebody anymore, really. You know, you know, so like there's apps for that. There's all that stuff. My consistent thread with all this stuff is I don't, I'm not against the technology. Like, look, you can build a better mousetrap. I don't, I'm not like a, a purist. It doesn't need to be guitar and drums on stage. I'm fine with a laptop. I'm fine with a, I'm fine with somebody plugging their iPhone in. I mean, there's records that are being made on people's iPhones. I mean, I don't care. A good song solves all the problems. You don't think once when you're listening to a great song, what did they record that on? Did right. they record that on that? My issue is with a lot of the technology is that oftentimes the tip of the sword is they're always telling how it's going to make musicians' lives better. And it may make some things easier, but is it making their lives better? And it often seems like, uh, you know, to quote the, you know, meet the boss, same as the old boss, right? That the, uh, somehow the musicians aren't making money again in this process, yet there's this whole new layer of a tech company or things like that, where they built a whole monetary stream that's not necessarily trickling down to the artists. I'm, I'm artists first in all this stuff. Music's often where the technology industry goes first to try to build scale. But as musicians, just like they often turn to uh, historically musicians, the LGBTQ community, artists, are the people that have have transformed neighborhoods. Now that's gentrified neighborhoods as well at the expense of other communities. But when all of a sudden a neighborhood that nobody wanted to set foot in all of a sudden has condos that are a million dollars a piece 20 years later, it's because of the vibrancy that the artists, the musicians, the LGBTQ community, all of those things made that an appealing place to be. But yet then the musicians all get pushed out because they can't afford to live there anymore. And then it's on to the next. So it's uh, how, do, how do we find a way long term to create a, a culture dividend or something like if, if we're going to help transform people's neighborhoods or cities, then we should not be then exiled once they become unaffordable for people to live in. I think that is a terrific idea. I am speaking with Ben London. He's executive director of Sonic Guild Seattle. Uh, you can find more about Sonic Guild at their website, sonicguild.org. That's for the, the whole national uh, organization. There's also Sonic Guild Seattle on Facebook, on Instagram, Black Fret SEA, uh, LinkedIn, Sonic Guild Seattle, and then Ben's also on LinkedIn at Benny London. If you could give one recommendation to any musician working to keep local music alive in their city, what would that be? 
Boy, that's a tough one. I mean, it's always, I mean, I guess the biggest thing to me is get out there. Like you got to give to get. And that if you're, if the only time you're really going out to see music is when you're playing, then it's not going to work. Right. You got to be, you got to be part of the community. You got to be a fan as well as a performer. Uh, after I say this, I'm going to go to out on my front lawn and shout at clouds again with all the technology and all the stuff. There's this thought to spend a lot of time focusing on things, but you know, people often ask like, you know, how do you make it? How do you do this? And again, I'll say this again, a good song solves all the problems. It's you can't get in the way of a great song. The other part is that I don't care how much money you have, you know, people forever have always been like, well, they, you know, they bought that success, this, that, the other thing. The consumer, they either like it or they don't. Now, there's the thing that you might not be able to hear it, but a great song, you can't stop a great song. People tell, people will knock on each other. They'll, they'll go up to strangers and be like, have you heard this? This is amazing, you know? And that that's, to me, the magic of this thing. And part of the, the intangible thing. How can you have 10 artists standing in front of you? Like you could put a show in one night, 10 artists that are all maybe playing the same genre of music, all kind of look the same, all dress the same, all the thing. But somehow the light seems to shine down from the heavens on one of them. And when they sing or they do what they do, it does something to your, to your mind and to your body and to your whole perception. And some of the others, it just doesn't make you, you don't vibrate the same way when you're, when they're performing. So that's, there might be nine people, but one of them, the 10th one's Brandy Carlisle to keep going back to Brandy. And when she opens her mouth, uh, you know, she changes people's DNA, I think, when she's singing. A good song solves all the problems. Indeed. This has been Season 2, Episode 5 of 24 Minutes from 24 Hour Nation. Visit us at 24hournation.com and follow us on social media at 24 Hour Nation. My name is Randall White. 